Good morning, I'm Katie. I'm the Associate Rector here at Incarnation. So today we're finishing up our First Timothy sermon series. And as Amy mentioned, we're celebrating the Feast of Christ the King Sunday, or as it's known in the Roman Catholic Church, it's the Feast of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. This is actually a relatively new feast day in our calendar. And the reason I mentioned the Roman Catholic name for this feast day is because it actually, this feast day actually comes to us from the Roman Catholic Church. It was established in the early 20th century in response to rising secularism and nationalism. And interestingly, when I was looking into this, I found out that the US Oath of Allegiance for naturalized citizens was actually put in place around the same time. So uh, the Pope, Pope, I think it was Pope Pius, put this into place in the Roman Catholic Church in 1925. And the US Oath of Allegiance became regulation in 1929, so very close together. And I wanted to read you just a little bit from the US Oath of Allegiance. I know this isn't going to be relevant for everyone, but I'm going to read it because most countries have something, something like this in place for their citizens. So I'm going to read from the US Oath of Allegiance. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom and which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I will bear true allegiance and faith to the same, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, so help me God. And now I want to let you hear a little bit from the Anglican or Christian Oath of Obedience which has even more ancient roots. Hopefully this will sound familiar to many of you, particularly to some of our newer parents. Do you renounce the devil and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? I renounce them. Do you renounce the empty promises and deadly deceits of this world that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I renounce them. Do you renounce the sinful desires of the flesh that draw you from the love of God? I renounce them. Do you turn to Jesus Christ and confess him as your Lord and Savior? I do. Do you joyfully receive the Christian faith as revealed in the Old of the Holy Scripture, the Old and New Testament? I do. Will you obediently keep God's holy will and commandments and walk in them all the days of your life? I will, the Lord being my helper. And now let's hear Paul from 1 Timothy. In the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time. He who is a blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and the Lord of Lords. He alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I wanted you to hear those declarations of allegiance side by side, to remind us of the jarring claims that Christians make 
that no matter what our passports say, if you have been united with Christ and his church in baptism, then your absolute and total obedience belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the universe. For as Timothy did, you have made this good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And this is the same good confession that Jesus made before Pilate, according to St. John. His confession that he was the only, that he was the long-awaited heir to David, the king of the Jews, and he was the son of God. But what does it mean for us to declare that Jesus is our Lord? We might want to soften the implications of this declaration of obedience. But throughout the centuries, the world around us has recognized this statement for exactly the threat that it is. Christians are quite simply saying that there are limits to our allegiance to any earthly power. We pray for those in authority, as we will in just a few minutes, even if they slander and persecute us. We pay our taxes, as Jesus instructed us. We strive to live godly and quiet lives dedicated to the flourishing of our neighbors, but especially those among us who are poor and marginalized and oppressed. But those in authority are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And woe to those shepherds, whose politi those political and religious leaders who scatter and destroy the sheep of God's pasture for you will be held to account. Jesus will return as the judge of the living and the dead, and he will appear before all people at the right time. And at that time, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess what we have already confessed, which is that Jesus Christ is our Lord. But before that day, in this time, before Jesus' kingship is acknowledged by all people, the citizens of God's kingdom are charged with holding their leaders to account. It is our job to sift and weigh our leaders and evaluate them against the standard of God's righteousness and justice. And while we will strive to live peaceably with all, we must, we are obligated to withhold our compliance if our leaders' demands conflict with our call, as Paul says, to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. One of our kids was reflecting on this in Atrium, and they said this, heaven can be hard to get to. Heaven is like a prize. You should give everything for God and heaven. Everything for God. Or as we say in our baptismal profession of faith, I renounce the sinful desires of the flesh that draw me from the love of God. 1 Timothy 6.17 talks about one of those desires that draws us from the love of God. Paul says this, do not set your hearts on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God. Our riches are the place where our loyalty to Christ will constantly be tested. 
especially when you consider that Paul says that we should be content with food and shelter. Hmm? Or as we say, the bread that we need for today. Right? We pray that in the Lord's Prayer each week. Attachment to money is dangerous to our souls because it's the root of all types of evil. It's the root of greed. It's the root of hardness of heart to those around us in need. It's the root of hoarding our wealth. It's the root of putting our hopes and our trust in things other than Christ. Getting and maintaining our wealth hinders our pursuit of God's kingdom because somehow, in some mysterious way, the very possession of money does something to our inner life. I realized this for the first time when I gave one of my kids an allowance, right? Right, suddenly money, which had meant nothing, right? They didn't know where it came from, they didn't know where it was going, but suddenly you give them a $5 bill and it's an obsession. Where do I keep it? How do I keep it? How do I make sure nobody else finds it? What am I gonna spend it on? I'm gonna make a list, it's gonna take all day, right? So from the very earliest ages, we watch this happen, how our souls get entwined with our belongings. It sucks up all our time and energy that's needed to cultivate unity with God. And it warps us, right? Our possessions somehow warp our souls. It makes it really hard to love and trust God when you're working really hard to accumulate just what you need. And it's really hard to love other people generously when you're really worried about how you're going to pay your bills. Our concerns about money just have this way of consuming and filling us despite our best intentions. And somehow that just leaves us with little room to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I don't think it's surprising, really, when you think about money and how much depends on it, right? Think about the way status is derived from money or security. Money finances our educations, our homes, our holidays, our retirement years. And so I think it's worth pausing and asking the question, because Paul does, he clearly ties the question of money to allegiance to God. And so let, I want to take us, have us take a moment and ask the question, how do we pursue righteousness when it comes to our money? How is our baptismal affirmation say, do we obediently keep God's holy will and commandments? Well, fortunately, Paul is pretty clear. He says, you should do good and not set your hopes on wealth. And he goes on to say, rather than being rich in possessions, be rich in good deeds, be extravagant givers, sharing with others. Now, if you're like me, you want to conclude that Paul is simply instructing us to give out of our excess after we've taken care of ourselves. But let's go back to what Paul says. So a little bit earlier in the chapter, we didn't read it today, but Paul kind of bookends this, this praise statement about Christ as king with two teachings on wealth. And in that earlier teaching, he says this, since we have entered the world penniless and will leave it penniless, if we have bread on the table, 
and shoes on our feet, that's enough. And it's enough because our hopes are set on Jesus, who gives us everything we need for our enjoyment. God isn't stingy. He knows what we need, and we set our hope on him. Everything we've been given is a gift. We sometimes think that our ability to work, our knowledge is our own, but it's a gift, all of it. You didn't choose your giftedness. You didn't choose where you live. You didn't choose the family you were born into. It's all a gift, every last bit of it. And so everything you have is a gift because it was derived from the first gift you received, which is life. My fifth set of shoes, my larger home, my newer car, my second vacation of the year, my costly dinner and drink are all a gift. But they're excessive, says Paul. Right? What is his standard? If I have food on the table and shoes on my feet. And so how do we steward wealth? Most of us have excess. Most of us have more than one pair of shoes and more than the next meal. And so if the standard is just enough, how do we steward the excess? Well, Paul says, give it away just as generously as you've received it. We aren't called necessarily to give until we're destitute, although there are certainly some Christians that have discerned that is their call. But that's not what Paul is calling for. He's not calling for destitution. But he is calling us to love our neighbors exactly as we love ourselves. And whom among our neighbors would not appreciate a Thanksgiving meal this week that doesn't come out of cans, but comes from gardens and farms? Which of our neighbors would not like to have just one warm coat this winter? Which of our neighbors is not worried about their second car, but their first car and how it runs? What neighbor is not worrying, would not like to worry about how to pay their heating bill this winter? Paul says, be content with food and shelter. Be content with food and shelter. And give extravagantly, because you can. And in doing this, you will obediently keep God's holy will and commandments and walk in them all the days of your life. Or as another of our kids said in Atrium, I think that the kingdom of heaven is like yeast, and we are like the flower. We cannot grow or rise without the yeast. We might be able to bake and harden, but without yeast, we cannot grow. In the same way, God's people cannot rise or grow in our faith without God and his kingdom. Jesus, our only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, protect us from hardening our hearts to your word. Instead, fill us with the yeast of your Holy Spirit 
and help us to grow into the life that is really life. Amen.